Well, good morning. Last week in 1 Samuel chapter 9, we saw the Lord choose a young man named Saul, a tall, impressive young man. And he was going to become the very first king of Israel. King Saul was going to need to bring those 12 tribes of Israel together as one nation. He was going to need to lead them into battle against their enemies. Now, understanding what it was that that Saul was about to be tasked with, uniting these uh, 12 fiercely independent and often bickering tribes into one cohesive entity and rallying them to fight against nations that were now oppressing them, You would think, considering all of that, that the job description for king would require, you know, stuff like an advanced degree in leadership and diplomacy, or at least some some practical experience with successful battlefield tactics. And yet, chapter 9 skipped all that stuff, and it focused entirely on on Saul's spirituality, or actually on his lack of spirituality, his lack of spiritual awareness, his lack of any kind of relationship with the Lord. We saw there how that hindered him from accomplishing even a a relatively simple task like finding his father's lost donkeys. Now here in chapter 10, we will see that God's main preparation for Saul has nothing to do with coalition building or strategic warfare operations, but rather it has to do with the one thing that will truly help Saul become the king that he needs to be. And that's this. It's helping him learn how to live his life in submission to and being led by the Holy Spirit of God. So grab your Bibles, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 10, and we're going to take a look at the first 16 verses of that chapter this morning. Will you do this? When you find 1 Samuel 10, will you stand with me? I'll read our passage, and you can follow along. 1 Samuel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it out on Saul's head, kissed him, and said, hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Today, when you leave me, you'll find two men at Rachel's grave at Zelzah in the territory of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you went looking for have been found. And now your father has stopped being concerned about the donkeys and is worried about you asking, what should I do about my son? You will proceed from there until you come to the Oak of Tabor. Three men are going up to God at Bethel, and they will meet you there, one bringing three goats, one bringing three loaves of bread, and one bringing a clay jar of wine. They will ask you how you are and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will come to Gibeah of God, where there are Philistine garrisons, And when you arrive at the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place prophesying. They will be preceded by harps, tambourines, flutes, and lyres. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully on you, 
and you will prophesy with them, and you will be transformed. When these signs have happened to you, do whatever your circumstances require, because God is with you. Afterward, go ahead of me to Gilgal. I will come to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice fellowship offerings. Wait seven days until I come to you and show you what to do. When Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all the signs came about that day. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a group of prophets met him. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully on him, and he prophesied along with them. Everyone who knew him previously and saw him prophesy with the prophets asked each other, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? And a man who was from there asked, And who is their father? As a result, is Saul also among the prophets became a popular saying. Then Saul finished prophesying and went to the high place. Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, Where did you go? To look for the donkeys, Saul answered. When we saw they weren't there, we went to Samuel. Tell me, Saul's uncle asked, what did Samuel say to you? Saul told him he assured us the donkeys had been found. However, he did not tell him what Samuel had said about the matter of kingship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for time together to consider these things. And Lord, I pray that as we read about this work that you did within Saul's heart, that God, you would be at work within our hearts as well. Father, that you would give us hearts that are soft and receptive and responsive to you. God, we look to you because you are the only one who can accomplish that. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, if you remember, the Lord used some lost donkeys and a relatively wise servant to divinely arrange for a meeting between the prophet Samuel and this young man named Saul. Samuel uh, hinted to Saul that he, he would become the next king, the first king of Israel. He honored Saul at a banquet given in his honor. And he had two conversations with Saul uh, that are not shared with us. And then here in verse 1 of chapter 10, Samuel openly declares that Saul is to be the king. As it says there that Samuel took the flask of oil. He poured it out onto Saul's head. He kissed him and said, hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? So no more hinting. And no more mysterious banquets. As Samuel anoints Saul, he kisses him as a display of his loyalty to him. And he declares that he is to be king. Uh, but understand, uh, this, this was done privately. Uh, this was uh, done for Saul's benefit. This was not yet public information. And yet, it was out there now. And suddenly... Saul had a whole lot to think about, didn't he? Well, before we continue on, I want to uh, briefly address three issues. Uh, first, 
the longer ending to verse one that many of your versions have inserted as a footnote to that verse. Uh, Some of you have a footnote to verse one that tells you that in the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was translated a few hundred years before the time of Jesus, uh, that in the Septuagint, verse one continues on. It says, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Now, uh, most scholars think that this longer version of verse one was the original, that it is legitimate. And I would probably agree with them on that. Uh, You might be surprised to know that uh, the copies that we have of the Greek Septuagint are actually substantially more ancient than the copies we have of that original Hebrew text. Uh, Scholars think that this longer ending was accidentally dropped by the Hebrew copyists after the translation to the Greek in the Septuagint translation. Uh, Regardless, uh, the longer ending adds no new information. It changes nothing. I mean, read it for yourself. Uh, This is something that you can take or leave without any theology, any doctrine, any history being altered. Secondly, I think we should notice something uh, about the Hebrew word choice that the Lord chooses Uh, to describe Saul's new role within the nation of Israel. Saul is to be made king. Uh, But the Hebrew word that uh, that the Lord chooses here is the Hebrew word nagid. It's a word that means the leader or the captain uh, of Israel. And he does not choose the more straightforward Hebrew word, melech, which would literally be the king of Israel. Now, now that's a subtle difference. Yet I would say that through this, the Lord is, he's saying something to Saul. He's telling Saul, listen, young man, I want to make sure that you remember that you may be the leader. You may be the ruler. People may begin to call you king, but there is only one true king of Israel. And that is God Almighty. God is telling Saul, listen, you need to remember they are still my people. They are still my inheritance. They're not yours. You know, that's a a really good thing for anyone who is in a role of leadership to remember. Uh, Whether you may be the leader in your home or at work or wherever, it's a good thing for you to remember that God is truly the king, that these people are his and not yours, that you only lead on his behalf. Thirdly, as we will see shortly, the anointing with oil, though important, is symbolic. It's a picture. It's a reminder for Saul that just as he has been doused with oil, and I would encourage you to notice that Samuel says he poured out the flask. He emptied it upon Saul's head. And this was not a dainty dripping of oil, but a thorough drenching that Saul received. And in that same way, 
Saul absolutely needed to be drenched, not just with oil, but with the Holy Spirit of God. He could not do the thing that God was calling him to do without the full enabling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? It's true of us as well. It's true of us as well. We cannot do that which God commands us to do. We cannot become who, the God, who God calls us to become unless we are filled by and empowered by and enabled by God's Holy Spirit. Consider for a minute what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. There in verses 8 through 11, Paul writes this. He says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you understand that? Do you understand what he's saying? Is in our own effort, in our own attempts and efforts, we will never be able to please God. But Paul then says, but understand this, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. We who belong to Christ, we have received the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit and our relationship and our walk with the Lord is dependent upon that Holy Spirit. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. He says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's because God indwells us with his Holy Spirit in that, at that moment of salvation. And so if you belong to Christ, then God's Holy Spirit dwells within you. Paul says, now, if Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, now think about that for a minute. Think about what that says. That should blow your mind. That should, that should amaze you that the, the spirit and the power of him who raised Jesus from the dead, that dwells within you then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Put a little more succinctly, we must be filled with, empowered by, and enabled by the Holy Spirit that God gives to all who are in Christ. Uh, we can do what God commands us to do and be what God commands us to be only through the power of the Holy Spirit working within our lives. You and I, we must turn away from our flesh, from the self-effort. We must reckon the self and the flesh as dead and daily submit ourselves to living under the authority of God's Holy Spirit. Look at how God begins to build faith in Saul to be able to embrace all of this. Look at verse two. Samuel tells the new king, today you will leave me and you'll find two men at Rachel's grave and they'll say to you, hey, the donkeys are home and now your dad's worried about you. Hey, Sam, 
Samuel tells Saul that as he heads home, he's going to encounter two men, not three men, not one man, but two men. They're at Rachel's grave, and they are going to say something very specific to him. But that's not all. There's more. Verse 3. You will proceed from there until you come to the Oak of Tabor. And there you'll meet three men going up to God at Bethel. And one will have three goats, not three lambs, three goats. And one will have three loaves of bread, not four, not five. And one will have a clay jar of wine. And they'll ask you how you are. And they will give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. Samuel predicts again, yet another very specific encounter. Then finally, Samuel tells Saul that after that, you will come to Gibeah of God, where there are Philistine garrisons. We'll come back to this in later chapters. But uh, by the way, if there are Philistines in Gibeah, which is in the heart of Israel, they've got a major problem. Their enemies have cut their nation in half. Continuing in verse 5, when you arrive there, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place prophesying, and then this is going to happen. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be transformed. These three rather strange encounters are, are all aimed at one thing. The two men who know about the donkeys, the three men at Tabor, and the perfectly timed appearance of the prophets, it's all aimed at convincing Saul that God is doing something, that Samuel knows what he's talking about, that God really is going to pour out his spirit upon him. And that, that as spiritually deficient as Saul has been, that God is going to give him a taste of what it means to walk as a man who is controlled by and submitted to the Spirit of God. It's as if all along the road, God is, is going to seek to build Saul's faith just to get him to a place where he will be receptive to the Lord anointing him, not just with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. Samuel tells him in verse 7, when these signs have happened to you, do whatever your circumstances require. Now that's, that's rather normal, isn't it? It's like Samuel is telling him, listen, all this incredibly crazy stuff is happening. And the point is this, that when it's happened, I want you to live your life. I want you to live your life as someone who knows that God is with you. I want you to, to learn how to live your life as a, a man who is directed by and filled by the Spirit of God. You see, the point of all this is that Saul would learn how to live his life under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. When the, when the Spirit of God comes upon Saul, the purpose isn't just for him to have some sort of ecstatic experience, some type of, of moment on the mountaintop, as good as that is. The purpose here is that when he comes back to his normal life, that he would come back as someone who has been changed, who is being led by and who is fully submitted to the Holy Spirit of God. He was to come back to living his everyday, 
normal life following God's leading, no longer being someone who lived for self, but now being one who sought after God's agenda. Because you see, as king, he was no longer his own man. Now, he was God's man leading God's people. I look at that. It causes me to think of how Jesus described the normal Christian life for you and me. Mark chapter 8, there in verses 34 through 38, Jesus says this, if anyone wants to follow after me, if anyone wants to be a follower of Christ, if anyone wants to uh, be labeled by the name Christian, if anyone wants to belong to Jesus, here's how it's going to work. Jesus says, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and let him follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. You see, you, you and I, we too, just like Saul, are called to give up living under the direction of our own desires, our own judgment, living according to what we think best. Uh, for us, that is something that is gone, something that is done with. Now, you and I, we are to live as those who have willingly put ourselves under the authority of God. We're to live as those who Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, as being not our own, as being those who have been bought at a price, because that does describe us. We are not our own. We have been purchased by our Savior. We are to live as those who belong to God, no longer living for self, but now living each day in the normality of our day-in, day-out life for Christ. Verse 8 is interesting. It says that afterward, Samuel tells Saul, at some point you're going to go ahead of me to Gilgal and I will come to you. It's at some undetermined time in the future that Saul is to go to Gilgal. Now remember where Gilgal is. That's, that's that place back uh, where the 12 tribes first entered the promised land. It's where they first entered into this thing of being God's people in God's land. And here it is the place where for the first time, as we will see in chapter 11, that Israel will accept Saul as their king. <laughs> I think it's interesting that Samuel tells him, by the way, you're going to have to wait for me there. Yeah, as we'll see later, Saul's not too good at waiting. Samuel says all of that to Saul, and then Saul turns to go, and it all begins to happen. Look at verse 9. Saul turned to leave Samuel, and God changed his heart. And all the signs came about that day. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came powerfully on him, and he prophesied along with him. And everyone who knew him previously and saw him prophesy with the prophets asked each other, what in the world happened to the son of Kish? Can this really be happening? Is Saul really among the prophets? And a man who was from there asked, who is their father? As a result, is Saul among the prophets became a popular saying. 
Notice that everything here happened exactly as Samuel said that it would. That's really important because you see, Samuel said that he was speaking for God. And when God speaks, what he says will always happen exactly as he has said it would. No exceptions, no exclusions, no excuses. That means this. If someone tells you something and claims that what they are saying is from God, and then they had better be 100% accurate. No excuses, no exclusions, no exceptions. And if they are not 100% accurate, then friends, we need to hold them accountable for that. But here, everything that Samuel said happened exactly the way that he said it would. Every detail, even the point of Saul being filled with God's Holy Spirit and beginning to prophesy with the prophets. And that was such an incredibly unexpected thing for those who knew Saul that the commonplace response was, what? Are you kidding? Saul? Saul, our Saul. He's one of the prophets? No way. They were all so absolutely amazed that such an unspiritual man was now filled with God's Holy Spirit. Uh, one guy, I think in the Hebrew, his name is Karen, is so convinced that this just doesn't make sense that he basically asks to talk to a manager. <laughs> he, he's saying, I want, who is in charge here? Who is their father? I need to talk to someone who knows what's going on here because this makes no sense whatsoever. The gist of what we read here is that this was such a shocking change. Saul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, has truly become a new, a changed man. And friends, that's how it's supposed to be with us as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there Paul is speaking to the church there in Corinth. This is how he greets them. He speaks to the unrighteous, the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the males who are having sex with males, the thieves, the greedy people, the drunkards, the verbally abusive people, and swindlers. And in verse 11, he makes clear that, yes, he's talking to the church when he says all of that. He says, some of you used to be like this. That is who you were, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. What Paul is saying here is that you and I, we are to be changed people. We are to be people who, who have been washed clean. We have been forgiven. We have been freed from the hold that sin had upon us. Instead of being held captive by sin, we are now held captive and set apart for Christ. We've been set free from our guilt, not just from the feeling of guilt, but from the reality of our guilt. We have been declared innocent by God himself. 
And as you and I live out our lives from the reality of being washed and sanctified and justified, we will live lives that are so changed, so different from what we were that those who knew us before, they will look at us and begin considering asking to talk to a manager because they just can't believe that this is real. But it is. It's the most real kind of change that is possible. I think it's interesting that even Saul's family here is trying to figure out what in the world has happened to this young man. His uncle is quizzing him. Now, tell me, exactly where did you go? Well, precisely, what did Samuel say to you? You know, that, that's kind of the dynamic that we should be experiencing as well. When Christ gets a hold of us, Scripture says that we will become transformed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he will be slightly nicer than he used to be. <laughs> Yours doesn't say that, does it? No. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It is gone. It exists no more. And see, the new has come. You see, there is a change, Paul says, that happens to those who put themselves in the hands of God. And it's a change that Paul says you can see. But understand something here. Understand, it isn't about you just trying harder or doing better. This is not a change that you or that someone else can force upon your life. It is not merely following rules or holding to higher standards. It isn't a high voltage fence that keeps you in bounds by fear or by force. And it's not about performing well enough in hopes that you might measure up. Fear of failure or the pride of achievement can't get you there. As Paul says in the very next line of 2 Corinthians 5, there in verse 18, this change, this transformation comes as a result of what God does. It says it is, it is from God. It is from God. It is God who changes us. And how does he change us? Well, Paul says it is by reconciling us to himself through Christ. It is through what Christ achieved upon the cross, paying our sin debt and restoring us into right relationship with our God. What we need and what the Holy Spirit offers us is true transformation. Something that only the Lord can do as we submit ourselves to him, as we choose to allow him to rule over us and to transform us. It is a miraculous but invisible change that takes place within us that brings about an observable revolution in how we live and talk and think. It is a change that, uh, that is birthed from within. 
that takes place on the interior of our soul and gets expressed in how we speak and how we think and how we live. It's a change of heart, not just a change of rules. You know, you just adopt a new set of rules. All that that will do is create a hypocrite who maintains appearances, but who remains dead inside. What God is after is a new life within that brings about a revolutionary change throughout. It makes me think of what the Lord promised to his rebellious people Israel. There in Ezekiel chapter 36 in verses 26 and 27, God's prophet speaking on behalf of God says to his people, listen, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The prophet says, listen, here's what God is offering you. You are so hardened and resistant toward the Lord, but he is willing to give you a heart that is soft and receptive and responsive to him. He is willing to put within you his spirit that has the power to free you, to change you. He says, I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and to carefully observe my ordinances. The Lord offers his people is true transformation. I would ask you this morning to step back and to ask this of yourself. Is that what you have experienced of the Lord? Or have you merely experienced rule following and appearance presenting? Because what he is offering us is something far greater. A new heart. The life of his spirit dwelling within. Has he given you a new heart? Is his spirit dwelling within you? If not, let me encourage you from the words of Jesus himself. Luke eleven thirteen. Jesus says, if you then who are evil. Okay. Thanks, Jesus. <laughs> Sometimes the truth hurts, huh? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. You know, we're going to close out our time together here worshiping. And though I do encourage you to sing, to participate, to express your praise to the Lord, yet I also would encourage you to take a moment to step back and as the psalmist did, to ask the Lord to search, to search your heart, to test and to see what's in there. You know, for some, 
Maybe you have never come to that place of surrender to the Lord. You have never experienced the free gift of salvation. You, you have tried your best to follow rules, to look like it's all together. But what you really need is to surrender and to invite God to fill you with his Holy Spirit and begin to change you, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. To change your heart. That your changed heart might result in a changed life. Maybe you have experienced his forgiveness his justification, his sanctification, setting you apart just for himself. But maybe this morning you need to be reminded. You need to be reminded that it's not about your performance. It's about him giving us that soft heart, about him pouring into us the power of his Holy Spirit so that we might begin to experience victory over those things that would hinder us. I encourage you as we worship together to consider these things. We're going to have some people up here uh, to pray with you. Ron and Paula could come up on this side, and and Lou and I will be over here. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. Let's worship him. Let's seek him. Father, we thank you. We thank you, God, that it isn't just about us performing well, us uh, following rules, but, Lord, that you desire to do a work within us that, that is shocking, uh, transformational. God, that we would be new, that we would have soft hearts where once they were hard and that we would have your power within where once we were helpless. God, we we love you. We thank you for the cross, for the Savior, for your redemption. And God, we ask that you would work in this time, that you would speak to our hearts that as we seek to draw near to you, we would be very aware of you drawing close to us. Have your hand upon us and upon this time. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.